going to let it play. Just going to let it play. I'm kidding, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Mormons, my friends. That's a, a fast fade out. I still can't get used to it. They've got to give me fade out controls. It's not working for me. Anyway, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm Jeff Openshaw. Nice to have you all here with us this week. We're going to break down some news. We're back back with you. Last week, we had an interview week. If you haven't checked out the podcast with former Congressman Ben McAdams, I highly encourage you to do so. I loved interviewing him. I thought that was was terrific, a very sensible human being with just thoughtful views on important issues. So check that out. But uh, anyway, if you haven't supported the show yet on Patreon, you should do that. It's about like two bucks a month. We'll keep giving you the goods. It'll be awesome. And it'll let me buy a car or something after many, many, many years. Or continue hosting the website. Yeah. I mean, or we could do that. Yeah. Website hosting, podcast production costs, all these sorts of things. This very service we're using right here. Zencaster costs some money. That's how we get the video that you can watch. If you go to thisweekinmormons.com, you'll see me and Jared Gillens, my co-host for the week. How are you, sir? I'm all right. How are you? Not bad, my friend. Went to the Outer Banks last week, so that was a nice, nice little respite nice. from everything. You know what I did last week? Tell me, tell me. I got my second Pfizer shot. boy. Like so that. a week from Wednesday, a week from this Wednesday, I will be immune to all known diseases. I think that's how it works. (laughs) My understanding is the vaccines, it makes you immortal, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I actually watched the uh, the John Oliver breakdown last week of vaccines. Basically, he went through a lot of the misconceptions about vaccines Hmm. and- and he made a good point. He said, now, don't send this video to your friends who are on the fence because they're not going to listen to me. They don't want to listen to celebrities or liberal HBO shows. But he said, just like, take any information you can get from this and talk to them and don't make them feel less than for their concerns, but use the information. And that's something I appreciate about John Oliver. And also, I, I feel like uh, John Stewart was good at this, too, when he hosted The Daily Show. Like, they both acknowledge that what they do is infotainment. And that, yeah. you know, and, and John, I remember reading at least one John Stewart quote where he was like, we, you shouldn't be getting your news from me. Like I have a specific job and it's mostly to entertain. Yeah. And we add some information in there, but you like, you should be getting your news from better and more reliable and more serious sources. And I, and I, and I like that John Oliver is doing the same thing. He's like, Hey, I have a purpose here. And, but it's not to convince your friends who are on the fence. Like there are better ways to do that. So yeah. I appreciate that when, uh, when celebrities acknowledge the limit of their utility. Exactly. Because celebrities shouldn't be speaking out about the issues. Their job is to act. But who? Not, how, how else would we know who to vote for, Jeff? I don't, I, I, for, I don't know, for one. I don't. But I feel like they have other utilities to do things. I mean, Chris Pratt can make Jurassic Park movies and, and Marvel movies. That's what I need him to do. That's his, that's his job. That's right. I don't know why I singled him out, but that's... <laughs> That, that's Chris, fine. Chris, Chris Pine as well, similarly, could do those things. All the Chris's. What has Chris Pine been doing? I haven't seen him for a while, I feel like. I don't know either. I have no idea. Where um, art thou, Chris Pine? A nation turns let, its lonely eyes to you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a quick IMDb search for our listeners. Really find out what he has going on. I mean, he's 40 now. He looks, I mean, he was in the Wonder Woman movie this past year. Oh, that's right. He did do the second Wonder Woman. I haven't seen that still. Have you watched it? I've watched it. We watched it the week it came out because we have access to HBO Max, and mm. it was it. It was yeah, okay. It was uh, sure. It was a movie. It was a movie. It was not. It, I don't know if the first movie skated by more on its World War One setting, and that's what sort of made it all kind of work well. 
Um, because Wonder Woman 1984 just kind of got bizarre. The best thing about it was that they shot at the Landmark Mall, which you and I both know, and which is a decrepit, creepy mall. It's a horrible mall. They didn't. I don't think they had to do any dressing of it to film there to make it look like it was stuck in the 80s. Um, it was fine. It appears his next film after this year isn't coming out until 2023. The Dungeons and Dragons, uh, movie. Oh boy. Yeah. So that's gonna happen. That guy needs um, to get himself on on the Marvel train. Like that would that would keep his. Well, that's been that's been the joke for a while that he's in the DC movies where all the other famous Chris's Hemsworth. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's like the only Chris that's Evans. not in the. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Important Latter Day Saint news, everybody. But big things are happening. Um. Anyway, so yeah, it's been good times. OBX was great. Uh, fun taking the kids down there. You guys doing well in Idaho? What's what's going on there in spring? Springtime for Idaho. <laughs> Well, there are some Nazis up north. Sure. Um, but uh, no, I, it's been nice. It's funny, though, because I don't know if you know anything about like climate zones or whatever. You know, it, you pay too close attention to these things in Idaho because everyone's planting, you know, whether it's planting potatoes or planting your garden. Everybody grows things here. But we're zone five, which means we can't actually plant like personal home garden stuff until Memorial Day. Well, because you still get you still get last week um, I was coming out what I went out on my deck in the morning to go, you know, plug something in. We have this little and it, it's not important. I had to go plug something in on the deck and I almost slipped and fell. And I was like, why is the deck so slippery? It's because like it had rained the day before and then it had frozen overnight. It, and I was like, why get- is there ice on my deck in mid you know, or in the beginning of May? Um, but yeah, so you keep getting frost, so you don't really want to plant your tomatoes or anything until May 31st. So no, I get it, it is spring here, but it's sort of like a tricky spring where it's like, Hey, it's spring, but not quite, not quite. Uh, we were up in Island park this weekend, uh, which is a beautiful little park, uh, in Targhee national forest. And Kelsey and I were out on a walk and it was snowing on us, just very light, tiny little flakes. The sun was out. It was like, in the high 40s and little snowflakes were coming down all around us. So you just don't know what to expect in eastern Idaho uh, in even in May. But it's but it's been very beautiful. Our lawn is actually starting to grow. Uh, this is exciting to us because we just bought this house in February. So we didn't know what the state of the lawn was. But we've yeah. gotten enough rain and enough sunlight that it's coming in green. And we're, we're excited to see that. So, yeah, life's good. I am. I am the worst at lawn care. I do not know what to do with my lawn. I've uh, and in Virginia, when they speak in the Bible of noxious weeds just showing up, Virginia is very strong on that front. Yeah, if I don't you have a patch do. of dirt in Virginia that doesn't have something planted in it, weeds will grow. Like, yeah, and I don't. So, like, I don't know what to do with my yard and how to make it the grass better and stuff. If any of you have green thumbs, you're you can you are seriously welcome to contact us at contact at thisweekinmormons dot com, and I would love to pick your brain about the best way to fix my yard because it's I'm not proud of it. I don't want to be like not to disparage white trash, but I don't want to be white trash and have my trashy yard. I don't want to be the house that people think should have a car with cinder blocks next to it. You know, I want it to be. Something more, something classy. I'll tell you, um, I'm actually planning on making my lawn a little worse. Um, when, I, and I, I'm not sure exactly. I'm not. I haven't 100 percent decided I'm going to do this, uh, but I'd like. To, I'm going to go down to the local nursery plant place um, sometime in the next couple of weeks. But my plan is to create a nice looking and low maintenance lawn. Is to, I'm going to purposely. The, the idea is that I will purposely sow clover into the lawn. So that way, so it won't be like a nice immaculate lawn that's all grass and super, you know, Kentucky blue or whatever. 
But uh, clover is good because it's nitrogen fixing, so you don't have to fertilize as much. Uh, it requires much less water, so you don't have to water it as often. And it will grow alongside the grass. It won't crowd it out. It'll grow among the grass and just help maintain the health of the lawn. It won't look quite as immaculate, but it'll be green and pretty. And then also, if you let the clover flower, it's pollinator friendly. So I don't know why. No, like I just think everybody should sow clover into their lawn. You already know way more than I do about all of this, see? Anyway, but I want to go talk to some professionals about it just because they might say like, no, that you're crazy. It'll lower your property value or whatever. Or they might say, yeah, great idea. Here's a packet of clover seeds. Yeah. I was thinking of trying to tear up my lawn and putting in zoysia grass because it's very hardy and just spreads with minimal use. It just turns brown in the winter, though. It's a brown grass. That's that's standard. This week in horticulture. All right. So, um, folks, we've got some Latter-day Saint news. And I would love to lead off this week with my favorite story. This broke while I was driving to the Outer Banks last Saturday. My wife read the entire article to me while I was driving. So I will remember this vividly because I was like, oh, man, I want to write an article about it. But there was no way I could do it right then. So we've been following the saga specifically now at this point of the Manti Utah Temple for some time. We remember months ago, Jared, you were the one here the same week they announced they were going to to update the Salt Lake and Manti temples and get rid of their historic murals and many of their historic features, redo the interiors and make them set up for single room, you know, screen present presented endowment sessions, get rid of live sessions and get rid of a lot of the old stuff that's been in there. There was a large public outcry. It, it seemed to be the Salt Lake temple was just kind of, that was already too far gone because they've never really come back and mentioned much more about it. Yeah, I've never seen anything say, oh, we reversed the decision on that too, and we're keeping the murals. I think they've probably, yeah, just the ship sailed. Because they said they were going to remove portions and preserve portions. So I think that's probably what has happened with Salt Lake already. Yeah. And so what's happened with Manti, uh, initially, um, sometime after the fact, the church said, well, we've been thinking about it. And maybe instead, we're going to try to see if we can preserve the murals. We're still going to redo the temple, but we're going to try to take them off and consult with art historians and remove the famous like Minerva Tykert murals. Uh, You've all heard this over the past couple of months on the show, but then preserve them, maybe put them up in the church library or somewhere else, what have you. And that was where we left it until last week. You had a hand raised though, Jerry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. So that's where we left it. And I think most of us said, Okay. I mean, that was the name of our episode the first time when this broke. We called it, well, but why not preserve the murals? Like we understood the need for adaptation to change, to let the temples have higher capacity, to fix all these things. But why can't we at least preserve part of our history? And when they announced they were going to try to do that to the Manti murals, I think a lot of us said, okay, that could work. Like It's a bu- still kind of a bummer to change the temple, but we get it and we can preserve this artwork. So then come Saturday out of nowhere, the church announced today, plans to preserve, to quote, preserve the pioneer craftsmanship artwork and character of the Manti temple, uh, by not removing the murals. They're still going to, and they're going to change the way they do the, uh, endowment there. And then by building an entirely new temple in nearby Ephraim, Ephraim's probably 10 minutes up the road is where snow college is. Uh, you pass through it. If you drive from Provo to Manti, for example, you pass through Ephraim, not a big city by any means, but they will build a temple there to, which, to me, it's very interesting because when we spoke about this a few months ago, Jared, I remember one of the other things we said, we talked about is like, we're building so many temples in Utah. And if this is an issue about capacity, why another one. Why gut these temples? Just build new temples. And so apparently that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to build a new temple in, in Ephraim. And Manti is going to keep the murals. And I think it's going to stay progressive, but it is going to have the film. They're getting rid of the live endowment. Yes, that's my understanding as well. Because, yeah, because they're not 
gutting it. I think it has to maintain the progressive nature. But yeah, it won't be. It still won't be live. We'll, we'll, we'll all, we will still have lost the live, live endowment. Uh, so in that sense, it'll be a lot like, say, the Los Angeles Temple. The Los Angeles Temple has progressive rooms, and you go through all five rooms, even though it's film. It's been film, slideshow, whatever you want to call it, but multimedia based mm-hmm. um, for some time. So Manti is going to be the same way. I don't know how they're going to work in the screens based on the way some of those rooms look. If it's going to just be like a drop down from the ceiling situation, or what they're going to do, but I'm sure they'll figure it out. And so the Manti Temple will keep its layout as far as we know and the murals and just be tweaked to allow for the uh, the video presentation of the endowment. And uh, the, the Ephraim Temple is fascinating to me because they had a lot of details about it, like out the gate. Usually they just announce a temple, but they named the square footage roughly like 30 odd thousand square feet, which they called small, but that's like small for Utah. That's a perfectly fine sized temple. Right. Cause and they compared it to what the, the Brigham city temple. Brigham city. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the, but they even said how many ordinance rooms it'll have, no rendering or anything, but they had a lot of details about a temple that seems to have just kind of come together. They might have just determined, well, it's about the same size, you know, the area it needs to serve is this much. So, well, yeah, we'll just say it's going to be the same. You know, they might have just said, oh, kind of like Brigham City. And, you know, so they probably kind of made decisions up to that point, yeah. my assumption would be. And so they were able to at least say, well, we know it'll be like like this, you know. And who knows? We know it won't be huge. If it's still in such early planning stages, they could change some of those details, I'm assuming, if they needed to. It says it'll have four 30-seat endowment rooms, so not very big. I mean, you're talking, I don't know if that'll be, you know, three by five split between the genders in terms of, you know, 15 per each. Those aren't, that's not a very big room. That's pretty modest in size compared to a lot of the smaller temples we get. Three ceiling rooms and one one baptismal font, something we have to say now that we're in the era with two baptismal fonts. We have to bother to say one baptismal font. Well, only Salt Lake is getting a second one, right? No, no, because the uh, Syracuse Temple is also going to – the plans have it with the second font. That's a big thing now that we're seeing. Are two fonts going to be a new normal, at least in larger temples or areas where there's lots of Latter-day That's really interesting. Yeah, I thought it would be a novelty for Salt Lake as well, but then the Syracuse one has – it calls for two entirely separate – baptismal font wings they're not like fonts right next to each other in the same room you know they're so to maintain the symbolism do you still have 12 oxen and just split them up with six per font or do you have 24 oxen i think it's like the doctrine covenants where like if you have you know more you know if you you have 24 deacons you could have you know two quorums of 12 kind of a thing yeah something like that yeah we'll split i don't know what they'll do sorry i'm just being being ridiculous i know now jared i'm curious what you think of this all this is kind of cool news but what I find interesting is, um, you know, they they did it. They went in the Manti Tabernacle and pre- they had a press conference and made a video and all this. And they talked about, you know, this is the will of the Lord, which I think we can all believe. But do you at all find it interesting that nowhere have they said the saints have clearly been concerned about the temple. And so we've taken these concerns to the Lord. They've kind of framed this as we're grateful to do the Lord's will. And I'm, I promise I'm not trying to be cynical about this. But I, f- I just find that very interesting because in theory, if no one had, had been upset about the initial changes in the first place, that would have been the will of the Lord and we would have gone forward. I just I, I get why they wouldn't say anything because it opens the door for any public right. campaign about anything becoming an issue. But what, I don't know. What, did you kind of get the same idea or no, am I just completely? Crazy? And, you know, the, I'm looking at the article and one of the quotes says that president is as president Nelson said, church leaders have been giving quote, much prayerful thought to the hardy pioneers who labored and sacrificed to make it possible 
for faithful members of the church to receive their blessings in the Manti Utah temple. And then he talks about the craftsmen and artists and laborers. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And I think that, you know, I, I don't doubt that that's true, that they have been thinking about those people and the, the heritage of the temple. But yeah, I feel like there's an omission of, and the reason why we've been thinking so much about them is because people have reminded us that like, that's important to them. And, you know, and we should be thinking about that a little more. And like you said, my assumption is that they don't want to encourage like activism in the church. Oh. Um, but at the same time, and we've, I think we've had this same conversation probably on a, on, a, on a past episode of this podcast, but I don't, I get the apprehension and the hesitancy to encourage people to be like advocates because on the one end you have people picketing outside the conference center, like during general conference or, you know, like at the worst of, you know, the, when they still were letting anything happen on that sidewalk outside the Salt Lake Temple, you yep. know, had people like yep. trying to disrupt wedding pictures and things like that. And so I get like the whole, like, well, we don't want to encourage like some sort of like reckless activism, but on the other hand, like when has anything happened? Well, maybe I'm being hyperbolic, but when, like, it's hard to think of things that have changed or happened in the church that haven't started with somebody raising their hand and asking a question or, you know, bringing a concern to the table. And that is true of, uh, the 1978 revelation on the priesthood. I mean, mm -hmm. did that really just like happen in a bubble? All of a sudden it popped into a, the prophet's head. Maybe I should ask the Lord about this. No, people had been like raising concerns about it for decades, uh, including, you know, it goes back to, you know, David O. McKay talked about considering yep. making that change. Uh, also the most famous example that people love to point to is probably Emma Smith complaining about tobacco stains on the floor of the, of the school of prophets, which prompted Joseph Smith to ask the Lord what to do. And he got the word of wisdom. So it's like, there's nothing wrong. And I would even say, go for, so far to say, I think it's encouraged in our culture and also just in our doctrinal practice to raise your hand and say, I'm concerned about this. I have a question about this. I don't feel good about this. And that, you know, goes to our leaders and goes up the line. And that's how our leaders know to ask the Lord sometimes. So I don't know. I don't, I think it would have been fine. Like you said, to just kind of give a nod of, you know, we've heard the concerns of the saints and therefore we, you know, wanted to take this back to the Lord and make sure we were doing this right. And this is what we got. I don't know. I don't know. And, and likewise, if it would have come back and said, you know, we understood these concerns and we've taken it to the Lord, but we still feel very strongly that we have to pursue a different course. Like, right. the, like, like we've investigated this, but the Lord wants something else. That would be fine too. And that would also close the book on it in many ways. So we well, would, and it would acknowledge, we heard your voice. Yeah. We understand this is a concern to you, but you know, and I think there's, I think it's not just nothing wrong with that. I think it's good to do that, to be like, to recognize like, this is still a church that in some ways is by common consent. You know, like we are all in, a, we're yeah, all yeah. invested in this. We're all shareholders in this kingdom. So it's not, it, it's not bad to, you know, call thing, call out when you feel like something's wrong. Yeah. I mean, and I, this is all good. It's all good news, but I do just, I'm with you. It's, it's, it's a curious way of doing things and uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, speaking of the Salt Lake Temple though, uh, real quick, the part of the renovation project at the temple is to build a massive tunnel that will connect the new, um, the new temple annex and everything to, I believe the parking lot to the conference center. So basically the conference center parking will have a new underground entrance to the Salt Lake Temple. Presently, you've been able to park in the 
conference center. And then you go up in an elevator and walk outside and go across to get to the temple. This will keep it all underground because the whole thing's going to be underground as you work your way into the temple in the first place. Uh, I, I don't believe they're saying this will be the only entrance or anything like that, but this will be nice for those who are parking. And the big deal here is they've dug a 180 foot tunnel to facilitate this, which is actually quite long when you think about yeah. it. Like when I'm thinking about where the conference center is versus where the temple property starts, I'm actually surprised there's 180 feet to dig to get between the two. But And that's no small feat. I mean, think about, you know, there wasn't an existing tunnel here. It was just underground. And so there's existing infrastructure above and around you and you have to dig 180 feet. And now, and then I like the article pointed out um, that it hasn't connected yet because they've basically come up to the concrete wall of the parking the parking of the conference center, yeah, the underground yeah. parking. And so now they have to punch through that wall, but you can't just punch through <laughs> a load bearing foundational concrete wall. They have to like build some yeah. other infrastructure to make sure everything continues to stay supported. But they're like, but we finished the tunnel and that's like, yeah, that's a big job. I'm pretty impressed. I love modern yeah, engineering. Good, yeah. I, I'm always astounded at what people can do who have so much more knowledge and expertise than I do on things like that. That's pretty crazy. And what's cool too is they found uh, nails and other pieces of metal that dated back to the temple's original construction uh, way back in the late 1800s, which is kind of cool. A little bit. Well, and interestingly, and this kind of connects the two stories we were just talking about. My father-in-law was telling me the the other day that there is a also there's a tunnel underneath the Manti Temple, and apparently they had built this tunnel um, sort of in the early days when they were constructing the temple, and the idea was that you could drive a a carriage through that tunnel uh, and access the entrance to the temple. And then eventually when carriages were coming out of favor and like people starting in cars, apparently like it was a popular thing, like on a Friday night or whatever to like drive through that tunnel in your car. And like, you could hear inside the temple, I guess you, this is what my father-in-law told me. So I don't have a good source for this beyond uh, my father-in-law who knows a lot of stuff. So I'm going to take his word for it. But apparently you could hear in the temple, kids honking their horns or playing their radios and stuff like that. So the temp the, the tunnel is still there. They just kind of boarded up both ends and they made it, you know, they, they re they redid things so that you would enter the temple above ground instead of through the tunnel. But anyway, so Manti boarded yeah. up their tunnel I, I, and Salt Lake is building a new one. And if you want to learn about that Manti one, I just found an article at LDS living that's called basically talks. It's they call it the truth behind the only dedicated temple you could go through without a recommend. Get it? Go through the time. Uh-huh. Very hey, nice. Yo. Good times. Good times. Well, let's um, continue to talk a little bit about uh, refurbishing and remodeling and improving upon not not temples, but there's an old meeting house in Salt Lake. Uh, let me pull this up. Where'd you go? I always open up all of the tabs so that I have these. Um, things ready to go. And then I lose track of where the tabs actually are. Shameful. I know. So the Salt Lake Acting Company, they have owned, or at least had, they've had semi-permanent lease on an old LDS meeting house since like 1982. Uh, And it's a quirky old thing that was built in 1892. Uh, It's really, you should check out, you can find the link to this article, obviously on the Facebook page or elsewhere. Um, but uh, it's a really cool looking old LDS chapel. And it's very different. It's got like an onion dome uh, up front on top. Yeah, uh, It looks, so it's just completely different. And then also adjacent, but connected, there's this, an old Relief Society assembly hall. And so the Salt Lake Acting Company has had a permanent lease on this since 1982. 
So obviously, because of the pandemic, they haven't been having plays with people, you know, in-person audiences. And so they decided to take advantage of sort of the shutdown time to do a remodel. They did a big fundraiser um, that raised something like $750,000 or something like that. And the article is just talking about all the stuff that they're doing to remodel. And and I guess like sort of the, the hook of the article was that, you know, yeah, this is an odd, this is already an odd looking LDS, you know, historic LDS chapel, but now with all the remodels that they're doing inside, it's going to look even less like a traditional LDS chapel because they're papering the walls with leopard print and things like that. Anyway, it's just a, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on this article. It was just sort of a uh, matter of interest and it's, uh, the pictures were pretty cool and the the renderings and the things that they've done so far. And uh, eventually when things open back up, you should go check out a play by the Salt Lake Acting Company and sit in an old historic LDS chapel. Got anything to add to that, Jeff? No, like I said with you, it's a cool looking building. I I love the Onion Dome and all the style. And it's also a reminder that our buildings are sacred and special to us until we abandon them or sell them or do whatever else. And then they can be used for anything you want. And and now it's on the uh, National Register of Historic Places. So it's now a protected structure. And and I like that because it is. And how can they put leopard print on a protected structure? Come on. I don't know, but it will be, it will continue to stand for a long, long time. Um, and, but I think part of the reason why it was protected by the National Register of Historic Places is because it's such a unique design for an LDS yeah. meeting house. I, I do wish that we still had a lot of our Utah. We still have a lot of the older meeting houses that are even used by some wards, but in a lot of other places there, you know, even DC, we had our famous chapel on 16th street that even had a Moroni statue on it. And they, they eventually got rid of that. Um, you know, in downtown in LA, they used to have a lot of cool meeting houses and, you know, as, as we don't have the need, we get rid of them and that's okay. That's just what we do. We're just trying to make the most of our resources, but it makes me a little sad because while I think our, our efficient cookie cutter meeting houses are great, they do their job. It's just fun to have little pieces of history and uh, a little bit sad when they're no longer part of the fold for their regular Sunday purpose. I or Driving around like Idaho Falls, there are still some cool, like before things got really standardized, uh, you know, because they've, you know, Idaho Falls is in large part like living in Utah County, not quite the uh, same ratio of members to non-members, but still there's just, the church has a big presence here. So there's a lot of buildings and a lot of them were built before things started getting standardized. So it's kind of fun to see some of the cool old designs from the 60s and 70s that persist. Yeah. You know, they haven't been torn down and rebuilt or anything like that. And also fun in Idaho Falls is you have, I think, the only temple that was delayed because of World War II. That's right. In Mid fact, it was delayed, but they continued construction where, where they could. That's uh, they, they shut down the temple for like three years uh, and had briefly reopened for like, I think, you know, less than a year before the pandemic hit. But uh, one of the reasons why they had to do such a long uh, refurbishing is because uh, steel was a wartime rationed uh, good, obviously. And so they were like, well, we don't want to wait for us to be able to use steel again. So they just, instead of reinforcing the concrete in the walls with rebar, they just poured it extra thick. <laughs> so the temple has these super, super thick concrete walls. And when they were you know, just doing assessments, like, like they did for the Salt Lake Temple to make sure it's earthquake resistant and things like that, they were looking at these walls and they're like, you know what? 
we need to reinforce this because this was built without rebar. And so, but yeah, they, 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 it was delayed because of the war, but, but they also continued in spite of the war, but had to make uh, adaptations, which is super interesting to me. It's a beautiful temple. I got married yeah, in, in the Idaho Falls temple and I love it. I love that I got married there. Um, some of its old murals are a lot of, I think most, if not all of the old murals that were painted in there in the forties are, are still in there. And, yeah, it's a very, I love the temple. It's beautiful there. Yeah. All right. Some random, a uh, little bit of news here. Church senior service missionaries may now serve anywhere in the world. That's the headline from the Deseret News. And my initial comment is I did not know they could not serve anywhere in the world, um, but I'm not the main market for this at this point in my life. Uh, and, and to be clear, this is senior service missionaries. Obviously, don't get that confused with serving a another type of mission. You know, if your grandparent has gone to Africa to be a missionary or something like that. Service missionaries are still missionaries. You're still set apart, but your job can be different. You know, you could be working at uh, Welfare Square or a service missionary could even be someone who's called to work in a temple, for example. Um, lots of different things you can do. So that is now being opened up beyond the United States and Canada. I think that's great. You know, great. I mean, if there was probably some sort of practical logistical reason for limiting that in the past. And I think they've kind of started to recognize, I, I think in some cases, my, my assumption, my speculation here is that a lot of senior missionaries are actually getting younger. And so, mm -hmm. um, and also just have maybe more financial resources. And so I think it just probably makes more logistical sense to say, Hey, you know what? Like, we can open this up now and we can, you know, there's more opportunities to go around and serve where you can and where you will and where it's needed. So I like yeah. that. There we go. Uh, another one, I think we don't need to spend a ton of time on this. I, I'm sure this has been uh, covered quite a bit um, already on the podcast, but uh, uh, what's his name? Huntsman. One of those Huntsman's who is John Huntsman, the former governor, his brother, what's his name? James Mitt. Huntsman, another J. So James Huntsman, what? he has been famously suing the church to no. get back the tithing that he paid over the course of decades. He um, is alleging that the church uh, was deceitful in how it was using those tithing funds. And he withdrew his membership this year. Um, and he was you know, wanting for all of his back tithing paid from whatever to 2017 he wants it all, uh, to 1993 to 2017 he wants all why those that dates why specifically that time period well I don't know. 2017 my guess is probably when he stopped paying tithing yeah. um so that that's a good end date so 1993 i don't know is that when he like got his first real job after college or something or i it's like Frasier premiered on the air and that's he's like all right i can pay my tithing now yeah that's I'm probably good. it yeah that's probably what happened so yeah, 1993-2017. Anyway, this article in the Trib is basically just talking about the counterpoints that the church has brought up. It's The headline is the LDS Church urges court to toss out James Huntsman's lawsuit, says his bid for tithing refund is without merit. It's really good coverage, I think, and, and they do a good job of summarizing the arguments of the church. They brought in some really interesting expert opinions, uh, Sam Brunson, who is sort of Famously on Twitter as a LDS person who's also a, um, he's a tax, he was a tax lawyer. I believe he actually teaches tax law at a university. I, I don't have Sam Brunson's yeah. um, resume in front of me, but he is a, a tax law expert. 
Oh yeah, he is. There it is. Tax law professor at Loyola. Isn't Loyola a Jesuit school? Anyway. Yes. I just find that interesting. So he's an LDS guy who works at a Catholic university and he's opining on an ex-Mormon's lawsuit to get his tithing back. And he basically just appraised the church's response as uh, a very solid response, done exactly the way that a response is done. Uh, He says it actually strikes me as being fairly devastating, but it's done without fireworks or theatrics. So in summary, Sam Brunson is saying like the church is a really great argument for dismissing this suit out of hand. So who knows what's going to happen with this. I think it's interesting that a person who voluntarily gave and also like when you fill out a tithing slip, it says there the church has the right, reserves the right to use your funds however it sees fit. So you're tacitly agreeing when you fill out a tithing slip and whether online or, or you know, physically, and then you give that money to the church, you're basically saying, I'm going to let you, this is a faith offering. You're going to do with it however you see fit. And now he's saying, they deceived me. I don't know. I, I, it doesn't seem like he's got much of a legal leg to stand on. And the church acknowledges that too. They, they're they alleging that he's doing this more performatively, that, that, that it may mm-hmm. not actually be that he expects to get his money back, but he's trying to create publicity to draw attention to what he thinks is an important issue or whatever. Uh, sorry, I don't want to so be too. completely dismissive and with that whatever, but it just it does seem ah, to me that dismissive. there's not a... Right, haha. That was unintended. Um, it just does seem to me that like... <laughs> I'm no tax expert, but I kind of think what what does he really expect here? It doesn't seem like there's much chance that this is actually going to do anything. So whatever, Brother Huntsman or former Brother Huntsman, good luck with all of yeah, that. You're not our brother anymore if you don't come. Former brother. You, my own brother. You get to be a visitor's welcome. That's what you are. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Visitor Huntsman, you're not getting your tithing money back. I, I mean, I assume he's not. So who knows? We'll see. I'm sure this will be resolved either very quickly or drawn out over the next several months. What a hoot. So I would like to talk about something that I guess has become a bigger deal to me over the past week than, or than, it, than it should be, right? So um, this, this would almost normally be a story that we just kind of gloss over, right? So the story is that Sister Wendy Nelson, uh, President Nelson's wife, spoke at the university Utah Valley University's commencement. People speak at commencements all the time. Yippee. And it's easy to say, okay, well, that's nice that that, 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 that happened. But going into it, for one, there was some controversy, I think, Saran, because she spoke about like removing contention and listening to people and embracing uh, others in diversity. And there are some who took issue with some things she said that that they take to mean she's not exactly been friendly to the LGBTQ community. So, and that essentially UVU was endorsing her stance on that. That's kind of a whole other issue. I mean, her remarks went off without a hitch, but um, that was one, there was controversy leading into it, which reminded me of the controversy when Dick Cheney was speaking at BYU when I was graduating and how people were like the same idea. They're like, so is the church like cool with the Iraq war? Is that what we're saying about this people? Like, is that why we're here? There were like um, full on protests on campus. There were it was a Dick lot Cheney of- talking. Yeah. It was a fun time to be at BYU. I got to be part of two protests there. It was great. What was the other protest? Uh, the other protest was only the year prior when I'm forgetting the guy's name now, but there was a, a man who was getting his master's, like a married guy. And he wasn't even, his, I think he was getting his master's there, but he worked for um, BYUSA as an advisor or something like that. And he published an op-ed like in the Daily Universe 
essentially suggesting ways to improve what BYUSA was because he was basically saying like it's not actually like a functional student body and we need to do things to serve the students better. And the university got mad about this and tried to silence him and they fired him. But they said, look, if you don't talk about being fired, we'll keep you on our health care and your wife is pregnant. Wink, wink. Like maybe just keep it quiet. He did not keep quiet and he went public and there were actual protests about like basically about censorship at BYU. Uh, people had shirts that said BYUSSR, which were just great shirts in general. I think that's, that's fantastic. It was it was pretty fun. It was great. It was just fun to be a part of some some form of civil disobedience. They should have like taken those that same idea and run with it and and taken like Brigham Young's image and made it look like the Che Guevara shirt. You know, they probably did. I should have bought one when I had the chance. <laughs> I, I regret not owning one of those. Just as a just as a novelty item, if right. anything. So, anyways, she spoke, and that's fine. And for those of you who follow us on Facebook, we did post about this, and I think we got some flack. Some of it rightfully so, perhaps for not explaining it as well as we could have, because there's different ways to look at this. Like one, great, the prophet wife spoke. Um, but there's two other areas that I think are worth exploring. One, Sister Nelson has her own credentials as a as a standalone individual. Um, why is she being introduced as... It is funny because they did... On UVU's website, it does say Dr. Wendy Watson Nelson um, is a professor, published author, former nurse and psychologist, and wife of Russell M. Nelson, the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They mentioned this a little bit more that she does have credentials to be speaking, but I think it still comes off as if she were not the prophet's wife, she would not be someone on our short list to be making these remarks. I, that's the vibe I get. We That's conjecture. We don't know that, of course. But um, that's one issue. Why is she not being introduced more on her own as opposed to I am the appendage to the prophet? Also, it brings up this interesting issue of if, if she was not someone who was so credentialed, wives of general authorities are awesome people. And I think in many ways, they part of their calling, they have a calling essentially to be the support for that. I, I think like mission president's wives are actually set apart to be the companion to the mission president, for example. And I have to imagine there's something similar happening with the 12 and the first presidency. Um, but with that said, of course, like these individuals are not general authorities. I mean, they're, they're not like that's That's just, I'm not trying, I'm not being anti-genderist though. I'm just thinking about the structural limitations of our own church. Um, and so it's almost a curious thing when we have them, uh, that sounds so bad, right? But, but it's a curious area, I think, where I think obviously they have worthwhile things to say, but if you're presenting someone in the sense of like someone speaking from an authoritative position as a church leader, the wives of our church leaders are not those people. They might have great things to say, and I think that's good, and I want to hear those things, and I want to hear women's voices, but like the General Relief Society president has more authority to speak on church matters than- Right. She's set apart to a certain calling. So that's all I'm saying. Please don't come at me about it. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Just That's just like not part of the calling. And I guess this also does kind of blur the line. Like If it's UVU, it's a state school, and we're having- church-related people speaking, which is still an honor. It's not to say you wouldn't have like a Catholic cardinal speak at commencement as well at a public university because it's just, or, or anybody else of note, right? Like if you have the Dalai Lama speak at, at, at UCLA, sure. Why would you not want the Dalai Lama there? Who cares if it's a religious person? I get it. So that's fine. But I think somewhere like Utah, it blurs the line a little bit more of the church's influence, especially somewhere like Utah County and sort of an endorsement of that. So Anyway, lots of things have happened. Her remarks were perfectly worthwhile. I just think it's interesting the sort of controversy around her speaking in the first place, some of which I've generated on my own. You're welcome. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's interesting. And it, well, it, one of my thoughts is 
she wasn't just there. She wasn't just invited there to be an, a commencement, the comment, the keynote commencement speaker, and be, you know, and you know, here's the wife of the prophet who's also credentialed. We want her to speak. She was also there to receive an honorary doctorate. And so oh. you had asked, you know, kind of pose these questions that you're posing. I, I you know, you had posed them earlier and I was t- thinking about it and I was like, well, maybe it's because, you know, maybe the, you know, the rationale isn't just like, oh, you know, she's a famous Utah wife of a, a religious leader, but also it's because she's receiving this degree. And then I was like, so why, why was she receiving the degree? And so technically her honorary doctorate degree is in humane letters. I don't know what that means. Um, Let's but then, but the other two people who letters. received uh, honorary doctorates were <laughs> former Governor Gary Herbert and autism act, act advocate and philanthropist Melissa Nellison. And um, so it's like, and then they they go ahead and they like later in the article they give these kind of long bios, but not long, longish bios, a paragraph long for each about who these other two people are and kind of what their accomplishments were and why they were being awarded these doctorates. And, and I didn't find like, and I even went to UVU's website where they gave a little bio for Sister Nelson and talked you know, and mentioned, you know, it was because she was receiving this doctorate, but it didn't say, and the reason why we're, you know, bestowing this honorary degree on her is because, and I don't know, maybe a doctorate in humane letters isn't one that requires explanation. Maybe it's sort of a, you're a great contributor to the community and to the world at large. And therefore, you know, we admire you. Therefore here's a degree. But I was like, maybe there's more of a rationale that answers some of your questions. If we knew why she was invited to receive her degree. And then that, then it would be, Oh, she's not just being invited because she's wife of the prophet, but also because of these other things. But it's like, it remains unclear. Uh, and, and like Jeff, I would like yeah. to, you know, append all this with a disclaimer that I, 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 greatly admire sister Nelson. I don't think she didn't deserve to speak or it doesn't deserve a degree. I just think it's interesting that there are a few yes. details explaining those things in case there was a question about it. And I, and I do understand, you know, like you said, it's a state where there's already a very blurry line in some cases between uh, church and state. Um, and so it is, I think a valid question to say like, well, a, a state um, funded and run school is doing this thing explain a little more about why, you know, so that's not just a wink towards the large uh, influential religious body that's headquartered there. I don't, I don't know. I, I get you. Yeah. I get you, Jeff. Uh, by the way, I, thank you. I know people are going to come at me, but um, the doctor of humane letters, by the way, is, uh, is usually an honorary doctorate degree mm-hmm. to those who have distinguished themselves in humanitarian and development professionalism. It's considered a senior doctorate, so Doctor of Humane Letters degrees are normally listed after any earned academic degrees in terms of titling. So it's a nice thing to have there. Your DHL, not to be confused with the delivery service. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) that's cool. Humane Letters are my favorite letters. If you Google humane letters, I think you want to say human letters and you find a bunch of clip art of like letter shapes made of people's contorted bodies. So like, are these like drawings, like you would see like, uh, like an illuminated text or are they more like acrobats forming letters for, you know, performative? More the latter, I would say. Yeah, very interesting. Um, let's talk, let's, let's, let's switch gears here. Let's, let's drum up some more controversy. Why do yes, 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 more, yes. more ire? Let's draw more ire towards our, ourselves. <laughs> I want to talk about this uh, article that was it Jan Reese? 
Please tell me it was Jana Reese. It usually is Jana Reese. No, this wasn't Jana Reese. This is the Trib, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's Peggy Fletcher Stack. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so uh, Ms. Stack uh, published an article called, that's, uh the headline is Latter-day Saints are talking more about Heavenly Mother, and that's where the debates and divisions begin. And it was a very interesting article, and I think it was a good sort of just like a cultural moment that she's trying to grab. And I think in a good way, and she even points out that uh, this is not just members of the church are talking about it more. Uh, when the new newish young women's theme was announced, uh, what was that a couple of years ago, they changed, you know, the, the, the statement that I'm a beloved daughter of a heavenly father to I'm a beloved mm-hmm. daughter of heavenly parents. We, we right. hear references to heavenly parents much more frequently, in, even in general conference talks over the last uh, few years and few sessions of conference. Um, so she's pointing out, you know, this is coming from the top down in some ways, but it's also very much a grassroots, you know, bottom up sort of thing where there's just more and more conversation. So the the, the portion of this article that I that I think got the most attention has sort of been making the rounds on. Um, social media. Let me pull it up real quick. So I just want to make sure I don't misquote anything. So the Minstack talks about uh, Fiona Gibbons, who uh, is a scholar and a very you know popular in in, in many in lot in large LDS circles uh, author and LDS scholar. She and her husband Terrell have published very popular books like The God Who Weeps and The Crucible of Doubt, mm-hmm. uh, The Christ Who Heals. Um, they also came out with another one very recently, and I can't remember what it's called. But yeah, so they, they're well known throughout the church, and, and, and Terrell Givens is a very respected scholar, and, and Fiona Givens is also a very respected scholar in her own right. It's not just that she's attached to her husband. So Fiona Givens was asked... The, the wife get, of the scholar. Right. She also... So he's the husband of a scholar, you could she, say. She will, she will speak at commencement as well. Correct. In a similar, okay, continue. Well, yeah. we'll see. So she gave a. She was invited by the Harlem Ward in New York to uh, give a a Zoom fireside in which she spoke about Heavenly Mother, and she spoke. She said some things, and she and as uh, according to my understanding, she prefaced some of these controversial things by acknowledging that they were speculative and that they were her understanding or her speculations come that came about from her own study and research. But she said some things about Heavenly Mother that some people did not take well to. That just like things like uh, she argues that Heavenly that it that it could be understood that Heavenly Mother was present at the first vision, and she had some reasons for that. Uh, she also uh, posits the possibility that um, Heavenly Mother is a member of the Godhead; that she could, in fact, potentially be the Holy Ghost, uh, which is not a new thing. Other people have come up with that same idea. Anyway, um, she, but I mean, she doesn't even conclude that. She said, is she part of a Godhead? One assumes she is. Is she the Holy Spirit? The scriptural uh, record is silent on this and so much else. So we, we fall into the sticky quagmire of speculation. So she's acknowledging speculation here. Anyway, shortly after she gave this fireside, she, sees, she had been uh, working on a sort of a temporary basis. She, had, uh, she was a visiting scholar with the Maxwell Institute, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute, for religious studies at Brigham Young University. And shortly after this uh, fireside was aired over Zoom and the fallout started coming, she suddenly was no longer employed by the Maxwell Institute. And it's really interesting because she never, Ms. Stack never says, 
she never implies causation. She says that, well, she, maybe she implies it, but she never directly says it. She says, after her recent remarks, several attendees complained, and now Givens is no longer employed by BYU's Maxwell Institute, and she is turning down invitations to all speaking engagements. So she correlates the two things, but she doesn't actually directly say one caused the other. And I think there's a really important thing here to note. Fiona Givens herself yesterday. Oh, but she's she's priming us, though. She's priming right, us right. very well. And that's, so I saw a lot of reactions on Twitter, especially where people were saying, I can't believe the Max wants to do this. I can't believe they're punishing her for speaking about Heavenly Mother. She was actually paid. She's been, She's a visiting scholar. She was being paid to do this kind of research. Now they're like firing her because blah, 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 blah. So there was a lot of conjecture beyond what Ms. Stack reported in this piece. And then Fiona Givens herself issued a clarifying statement on Facebook yesterday afternoon. And she said, uh, after almost two, she says, I would, uh, I've been asked for details surrounding recent events. I would like to simply share the following. After almost two years of employment, I voluntarily made the decision to leave the Maxwell Institute to focus on my own study, writing, and other personal endeavors. I maintain the highest regard and warmest relationship relations with the Maxwell Institute and, it, and its wonderful faculty. I applaud their work and support their continuing mission under the very capable leadership of Spencer Fleming. So some people are kind of rolling their eyes and reading a big wink into this, you know, kind of like when a politician retires, so they can spend more time with family. That's how people are choosing to read that. I don't know. I kind of feel like we should take Ms. Sister Givens, Dr. Givens at her word that if she says she left voluntarily and has no ill feelings and there's no rocky relationship between the two, I don't know. I'd like to assume that she's telling the truth, especially since knowing what we know about the Maxwell Institute, they're not known to be an envi- a place that cr- creates an environment where they're going to quash ideas that aren't mainstream. They generally welcome thinking outside the box and having people mm-hmm. challenge traditional ideas through careful and intentional research. And so it doesn't make sense to me that they would like fire her suddenly because she gave a fireside where she talked about Heavenly Mother in ways that are not traditionally acceptable. That's not a Maxwell Institute move in my book. But there's a lot, of course, that I don't know about things. But I just think it's interesting that that this article was meant to sort of more be an overview of sort of what's kind of going on, you know, top down and grassroots up as far as like, Heavenly Mother and how we talk about her and how much we talk about her. And people grabbed onto it and just wanted to make a controversy over Fiona Gibbons. So I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, I think you've covered all of it very well. I don't even know if that can add much of value to it. Um, We do love to latch on to controversy, don't we? Like we're looking for something to be upset about. uh, And I think that's the case. And I'm with you. I think Fiona Gibbons is a noted quality scholar and i like to believe everything she's saying i mean yes there's always the outside chance she's trying to save face on all sides to preserve a relationship down the line potentially and if you burn the bridge you know you can never ever come back again um well what's interesting is that her husband continues to be a visiting scholar at the institute so it's not you know like i think there was if the milk truly had soured that much like what would they would wouldn't he leave to like i don't know yeah. So I, I I think the thing that makes it most suspect is that she's not even doing she's like refusing other public appearances right now. That makes that's the I think that's the main thing that really leans in and can help. Well us the other fill thing too is that that the bishop of that ward was released like the next Sunday after that fireside took place. You see? 
Just but then, the, but then reports. So people started making a controversy of that as well, and then reports came back, and, and they were saying like, "Well, he'd been serving for five years." <laughs> so, so it's again, it's sort of like it's all circumstantial. It's like, well, did he get released because he invited Fiona Givens, who gave this fireside where she said controversial things, or did he get released because he was going to get released anyway, and he'd been a bishop for five years? And so, yeah, I mean, again, we like to see controversy and and find it where we can. So. We really don't know enough to know if this really is a controversial happening. I mean, all or, I really know is is if you subscribe to the exponent, you probably can't have a temple recommend. That's pretty much. Oh my gosh, Jeff! What, why would you even kick that that hornet's nest? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we love you, exponent too. We love you. You're, you're, you're beautiful, wonderful, valued sisters who have good <laughs> ideas that help us rethink and are some of our assumptions. So thank you, exponent two. Ignore Jeff. Someone has to be the comedic foil when it's the two of us. And so I'm just doing my job. I, I don't believe what it, I don't even believe what I'm saying. It's fine. Um, but <laughs> it's fine. Speaking of looking for controversy, uh, we love controversy. And one of them, of course, Jana Reese, who you did mention earlier, um, had an article last week. I took no issue with the article itself. She took, she analyzed a Pew study. That's all she does in this article. She analyzes a Pew study. She, of course, draws her own conclusions and has her own thoughts about it. That's why she has a call. Also, she she upfront, I think it's important to say, upfront, she notes that the Pew study may not be reliable because of the small sample size of respondents. So even upfront, yes. she's like, here, I'm going to discuss this thing. But this whole thing might, you might have to throw it out the window anyway, because they had a very small sample size. So I, I, it's so funny that she's so careful to not overstate things and yet, and yet. And yet, um, and, and that's fair. Some people might not believe anything we're seeing here because the sample size could mean just too much, too high of a margin for error to be right. representative in any way. But what the study was about was essentially uh, feelings about vaccines uh, cut across religious groups. That's the gist of it. But basically, you find out that roughly half of Latter-day Saints said that, of course, they're going to get the vaccine, but the other half are vaccine hesitant or vaccine refusers, which is kind of interesting. Um, I mean, there are, it has 17% of Mormons uh, would not get the vaccine at all. And what's interesting is that even though you've got, I feel like I've seen this in our faith during the past year, kind of bizarrely hesitant about vaccines, despite the very clear public campaign by church leadership to get us to think seriously about taking it, while acknowledging that these are personal decisions and we have to make choices for ourselves, but pretty clearly driving the point home that they want us to get the vaccine if we can. And even she says that, I mean, she says, um, where is she? There was that line. She said, Oh, she's got a good line about that word. Indeed. She, I mean, they say in word. Indeed. So by statement, by example, by photo op and by policy, we've made it perfectly clear, uh, that they want the church members to get vaccines if they're able. But what's funny is the other data in here that, that, um, sort of flips it around where it says Mormons were second among all religious groups surveyed and the percentage who agreed that getting vaccinated was a loving and principled thing to do. Um, three quarters of people, Mormons were first saying that they could trust their leaders, religious leaders, uh, to do what was right. And there's even one here at the end, Mormons come out on top of the heap saying that, uh, ask respondents if they trusted their religious leaders to give them good information specifically about the COVID-19 vaccine specifically about that. And we're above everyone else on that front, um, according to the study, which again, might have errors. So uh, Jana posits that the issue here is that we're at this intersection where our political views are now trumping our religious ones. and, Whoops, and the, Trumping. The, uh, particularly in the social space. And I think many would, instead of thinking that 
COVID, that the vaccine is any kind of a moral or religious issue, like a religious and moral obligation we have to one another, that it's a social issue and an economic issue. And so political views instead um, take precedent on that front. I think the study here, I think it is very interesting to see that, yeah, we're like, we're, we trust our leaders, we believe in what they're saying, but when it comes down to it, people are like, no, I don't think that's going to be for me. Um, which is just fascinating to me that that is what what is happening, and we're seeing this, of course, across a lot of uh, not to, but a lot of conservative America is taking more issue with vaccines than other parts of the country, and we have a largely conservative church. Um, a lot of those things go hand in hand. The comments here also kind of crack me up. I thought more people would be like, "All right, Jenna, good job," but um, many people are say the classic things like, "Why would I take a vaccine that's been rushed to market?" Okay, we've had that talk many times before. It still had tested field tests and all the sorts of things. Um, anyway, it's just kind of interesting to me. Interesting data points. I don't. I can't quite figure this out as Latter Day Saints. Why are we? No, and again, and I, and I think we have to take this all with a big grain of salt because of the large margin of error. But the other thing I take kind of take issue with, and I don't like that her conclusion is along political lines that it's like, Oh, people are choosing politics over. And, and, and I think that is true. And we do see that, but this, and, and also it's true that attitudes towards the pandemic as a whole, and also the vaccine have largely been along political lines, but you know, like, I think what we're seeing here isn't necessarily a political thing. People um, who get uh, their, information from biased or unreliable sources are not just conservative. Mm-hmm. They are also potentially liberal uh, people who have been resistant to vaccinating themselves and, or their children have been actually a pretty healthy mix or really unhealthy mix of uh, far right and far left uh, people. And so it, this isn't necessarily a, a black and white, like, political thing where we could trace this along political lines. And so I think the better conclusion is a little more generalized where we're seeing that people are willing to um, place their personal beliefs or their personal values or their personal understanding of information above their religious teachings or the urges of their religious leaders. And I don't know, maybe I just like totally vanillaized, you know, this whole thing, but I I think it's a better way to state it because again, I don't think this is necessarily a straight up political thing. I think we are just seeing more and more people who are willing to reason for themselves as they put it and think things out for themselves and make a decision regardless of what a respected authority might tell them to do. And now we're seeing that it's, it's not a liberal thing necessarily. It's not a conservative thing necessarily. It's just a, whoever decides I know better than, you know, president Nelson, or I know better than, yeah. Elder uh, Renland or, or whatever. So, oh, I, I should issue a, a minor retraction. I think at the beginning we talked about this being a Pew study. This was actually a study carried out by PRRI, which is the Public Religion Research Institute. So, I want to be clear about that. This wasn't a Pew study. Yeah, get that get that right, Jeff. Sorry, Le- about leave that. Pew out of this. Well, so so building on this, Jared, did you see the Trib article about kind of the descent in wards from due to COVID, like how COVID has become this interesting wedge issue within our, our ranks. Tell me about it. I will tell you about it. Oh, sure. No, it was a very interesting, and this, I think this ran in the op-ed section or it was like a sort of a special thing. Uh, So yeah, it was just covering an issue. It was Carson Harris. Um, Oh, is that a, 
I'm sorry, it's a very Utah name. I don't know if that's a man or a woman because <laughs> it's K-A-R-C-I-N. And at first I was like, oh, that's a woman named Carson. But then I was like, oh, it could be like a Utah spelling of C-A-R-S-O-N. So I don't I'm know. Sorry, you. Carson. Sorry, person Harris. <laughs> anyway. I'm going to find out for you. This writer, Harris, we'll just refer to them by their last name. Harris uh, reports and kind of takes the like, three, at least three, maybe more case studies of individuals who have had sort of a disaffection towards the church based on um, mostly their fellow members' reactions to the um, to the COVID pandemic. And um, yeah, one person there, uh, his uh, grandmother was 82 years old. She contracted COVID. She ended up, you know, getting through her her care. She was she had to be you know, hospitalized basically, and stayed there until she was no longer COVID positive. Went home, yeah. and then just a couple days later, uh, uh, had to go back to the hospital. Her kidneys were shutting down. Her brain was shutting down, and doctors, you know, attributed it to that fact that COVID had done so much damage to her system that everything shut down and she, she died not long after that. Um, but then when, um, you know, they were talking about this, of her dying as a result of COVID, it said uh, other family members and other people in his community, including church members would deride that and say like, well, they, she didn't technically die of COVID. You know, they're just saying that she died of COVID because the more, you know, it's part of that conspiracy theory that the more hospitals report people died of COVID, the more money they get from the government which seems asinine to me. Um, but anyway, the point is he felt like this loss of affection, not just from his family members who were members of the church, but also from the members of his own community who were his ward members and fellow members of his faith, that people chose their cynical conspiratorial attitudes toward the pandemic over compassion for what happened to his grandmother, that she died as a result of contracting a terrible disease. And there's more and more stories like this where people are, ha, were found themselves disaffected because they were like, instead of seeing compassion and wanting to help and contribute to, you know, the, the you know, resolving and helping things, that, that they were met instead with cynicism and brash attitudes towards people affected by this. So anyway, it was a really interesting article. And I've seen a couple of people repost this online and share their own thoughts and say like, well, this is, I, I agree with this article and here's my experience with this. And I know somebody who um, was in a, in a, in a ward where uh, two people died uh, of COVID. Uh, two wow. and both both of these people were women who were over seventy. They were in that high risk group, and both of them died. So, so two members of one ward. Imagine that. Like and and then when they the stake president decided to sort of open things back up, there was you know they just instructed the bishop you know open things up and if people don't want to come back to church, we're going to let them know that they're not allowed to have the sacrament in their homes anymore. And, and when people like responded back and including this person I know responded back and said, Oh, you know, we, you know, we still have this concern and consider these people who died. Like they felt that the response was sort of like, Oh, well, I mean, and that's not what they said. I'm, you know, I don't want to put words in these leaders mouths, but it was sort of like, that's what happened. 
everything's fine now, let's move forward. And so they, you know, even not just for the ward members, but seeing it from a leadership standpoint too, like this person I know felt like um, they had lost confidence in their leaders because they weren't seeing compassion. They weren't seeing taking uh, a very dire situation seriously when it merited that. And so I, I think this article is expressing what a lot of people have been feeling. And a lot of people that, at least that I know, have felt like this rings true with them. So I don't know. I, I, and I can understand that. I, I, you know, I, I, we're part of a community of saints. We're, we're, we call each other brother and sister, right? Because we see each other as family members. At least that's what we're encouraged to do. And then when those family members um, act in a way that you feel is not compassionate or not loving or, you know, whether to other people or to yourself, I see feeling disaffected with your community. And and I, and I feel blessed and, and fortunate that I haven't felt that way. I have kind of looked at some attitudes of people and whether they're members of the church or not, just people in my community and kind of raised an eyebrow and said, I don't understand why you're reacting that way, but I'm really grateful that it hasn't affected my desire to be at church and to like continue trying to love and understand and, 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 and do so in a better way than I currently do. I don't know. I don't know that to me, this is not an easy issue. Uh, and I thought the article was timely and important. What are your thoughts, Jeff? Yeah, no, I agree. And it's a good thing to explore. I mean, there's wedge issues are interesting things. And I feel like COVID has, has, is like it's nothing I've ever seen in terms of, of the weird divisions that can arise between us. It's always been the, all the other Things you know, you have we have disagreements about LGBTQ issues. We have other you know bizarre cultural minutia where people just don't get along or people get offended. Things, lots of things have happened over time. Um, this is one that sort of crosses across so many different boundaries. Instead, where we see whether they're co- people are COVID doubters or on the other end, people are super 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 hardcore about being you know protective during COVID and this and that. And therefore like un- you could even be like uncooperative with your ward and the needs you have because you're so hesitant to get involved. And like some of the comments we shared this this and the Jana Reese article on our Facebook page. And there's uh, for both there's some really thoughtful and sometimes sad and sometimes uplifting comments. I mean there's one person who commented that just said like we have people in our ward refusing callings because they don't want to have personal contact with other individuals because of the pandemic. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that's certainly a consideration. That's something you have to navigate as your ward. And on the flip side, like you just you kind of mentioned this Jared, someone else commented that said like I feel alone in what's supposed to be a community-based church. I thought I could rely on my religious brothers and sisters to get me through the pandemic, but I feel less and less connected to them because of their hesitancy to take it seriously or to believe in vaccines, uh, for example. Um, uh, I have a hard time not saying like there's no right or wrong i do want to say that like we're all in we have different circumstances and we have to navigate those and give us all of ourselves the appropriate uh birth to navigate those things and be understanding of one another that's absolutely true but i i do think it's just it's so interesting to me that that people don't view this as a point to rally around and say let's do this as a people i mean president nelson said it perfectly in his closing remarks in conference when he said you want to know when your template he basically laid it out you keep asking when your temples are going to reopen. It's going to reopen when the government, the government, okay, the government, the big bad government, but when the gov- your local government says it is safe to reopen and when we think it's safe as well. So what can you do? Do everything in your power to end this pandemic. That is the counsel from our church leaders. That's exactly what we have. And I know we can we can hem and haw and go back and forth about the best ways to address it and what we can do and what we can't do. But um, 
I don't think in my world I've seen crazy fissures per se, but I felt little bits of pressure here and there, like when uh, whether if when the blanket approval for the sacrament to be given at home was rescinded. I think there were people who kind of felt like this might be premature, like that we have to we could still you can still get one on one approval and like how it used to be. Um, but oh, interesting, is that how it is in your stake now? That's how it's been in our stake. So you can still do it at home, but you just have to do a case by case basis with the bishop. Yeah, in our stake, we basically they basically I mean they're they're making the assumption now that the only people who aren't attending are those who are like compromised or vulnerable in some way. Yeah. Which we aren't, but we have continued to choose not to attend. We 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 watch church live as because they've continued to stream it. But um but the, but the for the people who are compromised and choose not to, to go, um, they've continued to just say you have permission, you know, you don't have to get yeah. permission. Which so. is what, I mean, I'm not in charge, obviously, but that's what makes sense to me as well. So that move kind of surprised me because mm-hmm. I feel like it's very easy to treat people who are at home just because it's true. Like, how has it been before the pandemic? Right? Like if you don't, if you choose not to come to church, you can't have the sacrament because like you're choosing not to come to church and you get special permission from the bishop to bring it to someone who's sick or cannot come for whatever reason. And that's how it's always been. And I, I've seen that logic trying to be applied, but I'm like, this is wildly different from that. This is... Yeah. We're dealing with a pandemic and there are many people who do not feel comfortable or safe and are making personal decisions for the health of them or their children, their families, uh, based on the current situation. And we, I don't think we should be like penalizing them for that when we're not out of the woods on this thing entirely yet. And especially right. now that we've seen vaccination rates are, they haven't just plateaued, they're already starting to go down because the demand is dropping all of a sudden earlier than it needs to be. I mean, I, you might've seen that article just what, a week and a half ago about how now scientists don't even know if we'll get to so-called herd immunity. So then like, what right. does the future actually look like for us? So again, are we doing everything in our power to end the pandemic? Are we helping one another in every way we can but are we taking whatever appropriate precautions are necessary in our region, following the, the medical data for our region? It's different everywhere. Yeah. But um, I, I just worry too much that we're acting like this thing is over now because we have a vaccine, but it's not over. Like we're, we're doing now we're doing the hard work to get everyone vaccinated so it can be totally over. And I'm grateful that things are are improving, that many things are opening up and it appears to be happening, happening safely. That's good. That's great. And I hope we can build upon that. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. Like, and it, how it fluctuates. My father-in-law is in uh, well, he's a ward, I think he's a ward clerk at a, at a BYU Idaho ward. And he was telling me about uh, the experience of some students at the ward where, you know, the, the B, basically BYU Idaho had said, has said, you know, make an appointment with the health, the student health clinic and then, you know, we'll get you vaccinated. And he said, there was this one student who's like, very vulnerable and immune compromised in different ways. And it was very important that they wanted to get vaccinated and they got an appointment for like end of this month. And they were like, I'm just, I don't know what to do. And then someone in the bishopric said, well, that's the campus situation, but there are pharmacies all over Rexburg where they're saying we have vaccine doses come on in. And so then that student just like went off campus, went over to like a Walgreens and was able to just walk in and get a vaccine without an appointment. And so it's interesting because there are some places, it sounds like, where people are still waiting and like, and maybe part of the reason why that vaccine, you know, at least in maybe a small part of it, why the vaccination is plateauing and dropping off is because there are people who want it and for whatever reason can't get it and where they could walk 20 minutes or drive 30 or 40 minutes and, and have access to it because there are other places where the demand has gone down. And so I don't know, I, I would love to know, I'm sure there are people working on this data 
But, you know, I would love to know what the situation is, like how many people actually are still trying to get it and can't versus how many people still need to get it and won't. And they're, you know, so I don't know. It, it is it is a really odd and interesting situation. As far as I, I mentioned that, you know, Kelsey and I haven't been attending church in person, but we continue to, you know, do the online thing. So we haven't actually been, we, we bought this house in February, but we've never actually been to our ward. Um, but from what I can tell from watching the videos, they wipe down the podium between each speaker. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, that the people are, are supposed to, are, are more or less distanced by family in the pews. And every, almost every single speaker, everybody who's sitting on the stand, like in the bishopric or the chorister when they're not leading, is, is wearing a mask. And most mm-hmm. people that you see come up to the stand are wearing a mask and take it off to speak. I've only seen, I think, three people in the months that we've been here sitting on the stand or approach the stand without taking their mask off. Which, but, so the, but the impression I get is our ward is, I don't know what they believe about it or their attitudes, but it seems like most people are just on board to, hey, just wear the mask. Hey, just wipe down the pulpit when you're done. And so I've been grateful to see that. It'll be interesting, you know, like I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the podcast, we're vaccinated and, excuse me, after we meet, uh, hit our two-week mark, we'd, we're planning on hopefully going back in person and attending church. So it'll be interesting to see in person uh, what it looks like as far as how many people are wearing masks and how they're respecting the social distancing and things like that. So I don't know, but I, like I said, I, I feel grateful that I haven't experienced that, but I, I definitely know people who have, and I do think it's an issue. And I think it's important for us to be considering, you know, going back to like the, one of the questions from that uh, survey, like, do you believe that, you know, getting vaccinated or, or even wearing a mask is a way to show love and take care of your neighbor and take care of your brother or sister and if the answer is yes, then then do it, you know, like, and again, maybe they have other concerns or reasons for not getting a vaccine, but put a mask on, man. Respect when other people are nervous when they're around people who aren't masked. Like we're all in this, like you said, we should have the attitude that we're all in this together. And also we should have the attitude that, like President Nelson said, if we are in this together and we get things to a much better place, we can all go back to the temple. You know, we can all have that fellowship yeah. with one another in a, what we consider a holy place. So I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get the resistance and the, you know, the hesitance to even just do simple things like, you know, th- that help prevent the spread of this disease. Yeah. yeah. And especially like you just kind of alluded to there at the end, like why would we not go out of our way to mourn with those that mourn and to look after the one that's a, that's who we are as Latter-day Saints. And if your response is instead like, no, this thing is a crock, buck up. like Or, you know, you say my grandmother died and, they, and then your response is, oh, did she have an underlying condition? Like that, that to me is the love of man waxing cold as Jesus yeah. prophesied. Like, why don't we just have a loving response instead? Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I mean, thankfully for us in Virginia, masks are mandated for church. So there's, there's no way around that. So there's no question if anyone's going to be there. But even in my position as like executive secretary, I've had to I've fielded questions about that. Like people say like, well, I want to come to church, but I don't want to wear a mask. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like you can't like, you're welcome, but you got to wear the mask. If that's not your jam, then you got to rethink stuff. And I don't like to feel like I'm a bad guy or like I am pushing someone away from the gospel. But well, for one, I can, I can at least hide behind, you know, the fact that it's a state mandate. Right. So, I, <laughs> so I don't have to say like, this is just the, the bishop's call or anything like that. But, uh, you know, let's just look out for each other people. Let's just, have that mentality, right? Do what you can to serve others and not just yourself. And that's the whole point of a mask. It's not to protect you. It's to protect other people in the event 
you are carrying something, even if you're vaccinated, because we haven't done all the research on that yet, right? I mean, I think they've shown in a lot of early research that vaccine people seem to be less likely to even be carriers. But all the research they did to get to, to get the vaccines wasn't looking to that. It was looking at right. actually coming down with COVID and getting serious illness. Now they're doing the other research and we'll get there. But that's why some people are just like, well, come on, why am I still wearing a mask? That's usually the main reason. We just don't have the research like totally done in that sense yet. So like, it's well, okay. the other reason too is like, I don't walk around carrying my vaccination card and say, don't worry, I'm vaccinated. Don't worry, I'm vaccinated. Exactly. Like, if I walk into a store, you know, I think to me, the polite and sort of like outwardly generous thing to do is just to wear a mask because there's yeah. no way a person knows if I'm vaccinated or not. And if you wear a mask, it's a sign of respect showing you don't know if I'm vaccinated or not, but I'm protecting you as I hope that you're protecting me. It's you know, an outward display of an inward commitment. <laughs> well said, Jeff. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before and I can't quite put my finger on Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, on that note, everybody, the show's gone long. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you for tuning in to our fabulous show this week. I've enjoyed this as always. Jared, you're you're a brilliant person. I love talking to you. I could pick your brain for hours. And oh, I always thanks, love talking to you. So. Oh, shucks. Appreciate you being here. And of course, join us at our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and engage with us there and hate me. That sounds great. And if you haven't subscribed to the show where you get your podcatchers, that would be a great thing for you to do if you're an Apple podcast. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, hit the subscribe button, make us a part of your week so that you may have joy. So until then, everybody, uh, hope you have a great week. Do the right thing. Be well, be holy and be happy. Mm-hmm.